you know, obviously for a couple of years, there was a risk, right? There's so much risk. And, and my comments now when I'm speaking to people or speaking to an organization or just whomever, an oppressor, it's the risk isn't investing in women's sports. The risk is not investing in women's sports. You know, and then I would listen to Arteta and Arteta said he puts his his roster and lineup out when the players walk into the dressing room for game day. That's an hour and a half before the game, two hours before the game. So it's a fine, it's a fine thing. I look at it from a training perspective. How are you tra- how are you treating the players during training and are they all getting the same information? I used to tell my players this all the time, I don't need the best athletes. I need players that are willing to become footballers because tactically smart and technically savvy and proficient players will normally or usually outlast athletes. I took a team over that had like different coaches every year and they said, don't try and teach them how to play. Because they knew how I was. They said, don't try and teach them how to play. I said, well, then I'm, I don't want to coach the team. So that's all I know. Yeah. I don't know. I just think there's so many different dynamics and there's so many different tables and everyone wants a seat at the table, but yet we all have a seat at the table. We just have to be willing to do it in a way that we feel is beneficial to the player development. That's what we're all in this for. The transfer portal has now caused people to not be able to deal with adversity. If anything, it's allowed them to walk away from adversity. And uh, I think you have to you have to be willing to fight through that. There's nothing better than getting through it and proving people wrong. You mentioned there the video. How important is the video piece? Oh, it's massive because players are visual learners, um, and they want to see exactly. So every pic, every video has an animation, like you see if you're watching an NFL game. The, you know, the, the animation is built in so you know exactly these are the pictures. It, it allows the players to go specifically to the areas that we're focusing on in that clip. Doesn't matter how old you are, you have to be willing to listen and, and learn. And I think until, aside from coaching, being a head coach in the youth game, which is quite different, obviously, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you don't know until you're thrown in it here. You know, even as an assistant coach, players' relationships with yourself is very different. Knowing your heart, won't you? Whether I should listen to this person, whether or not they're authentic, whether or not they've treated you right in the past. And I suppose what you're saying to aspiring coaches out there, people trying to follow and emulate in what you've done is go out and search for those people. And if you're not in that room, maybe maybe it's not as drastic as find another room, but find the right people is what you're saying, isn't it? Welcome to this episode of the Pro Player Podcast. We have a big one for you today. We have the North Carolina Courage Manager, Sean Nahas, with us on the podcast today. Sean's going to take us through his experience and his insights from all levels of the game, including working at the highest level of domestic football in North America in the National Women's Soccer League. Delighted to welcome Sean to the podcast. Sean, great to have you. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, David. Look forward to it. There's going to be a lot of people that see this, see your name there, Sean, and they're going to they're going to think they'd like to emulate what you've done. They're going to want to follow in your footsteps. Uh, the whole reason that we started this podcast was to bring uh, the real you know, decision makers and the people in the women's game to the forefront to highlight the good practice that's going on. But also we talked a little off air there about how when perhaps you were younger and you strive for this kind of uh, insight and knowledge and development. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing with those aspiring coaches of the future. So let's start with them maybe, Sean. What, what would be your best bit of advice to somebody out there who wants to walk in your footsteps and one day coach in the league yeah it's a good question i think i think the 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 key thing is you you have to explore right you have to get yourself out there i think 
you know, from when I first came up through, through the youth system to where I am now, I think the things that have changed the most is that so many coaches want, right? They want to coach at the highest level, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication, sacrifice. I mean, the extra hours you put in, even if it's not your team getting out and observing, even if it's regardless of the level of the team, you can always pick up on little nuances. Even if you go back home and you say, I would have done this differently. It's anything that can really tickle your mind a little bit that can make you think differently than the way you are. And, um, and it just allows for you to observe and study. It's no different than any other profession, right? But it, it, the level of detail that goes into it. And the reason I say that is because the game is always evolving. You know, the game today is going to be different tomorrow. So it's our job as coaches to, to put ourselves in situations where we can continue to evolve as well. So I would just say explore, put yourself out there, get in uncomfortable situations, challenge yourself. And then, and then see and identify who you want to be as a coach, you know, because then you, then, you know, you have a pathway of where you, who you can identify with and stuff like that. So for a young aspiring coach, the more hours you put yourself on the field, regardless of level, the better off you're going to be. Such great advice. And and I think, I think the people out there are out there doing the work. I think, I don't know. I, I, I've heard people describe it as, oh yeah, in our day we would put the hours in and these, this new generation don't want to do the work. I think that might be a little bit unfair on some of the young coaches that I see coming through maybe, but I think there's no substitute is there, have you said there for the actual hours on the grass? That's, that's basically what you're telling people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't mean like, um, you know, the, that people want, so like everyone wants to be great at what they do, but in order to do that, you have to educate yourself, right? It doesn't just happen. So the more you, the more you can put yourself in those situations to be successful, then more people will buy into what you're doing and more people will invest in what you're doing. You can't expect people to come do that for you. You have to go take the step, the first step. And then from there, it's, it's easy. It's so much easier. So um, yeah, you just have to be willing to make that first step. And then from there, now you have a better plan of where you want to head towards. So let me take you Sean back to uh, when you first kind of started out and you've made, was it for you? Was it a playing career? And then oh, I'm going to decide to be a coach or was it, um, you know, you experienced coaching early on and you thought, well, that's for me. How did it all come about for you? Well, I was, I was still playing and, you know, I, I didn't play beyond college. Um, and even I went to Queens University in Charlotte, which is a small school. And after two years, I transferred back up to Hofstra University and I just stopped playing. And I stopped playing because uh, my brother in between season, my brother played at NC State and he also had started his individual technical program. And I was helping him with that. And I just caught this little thing for coaching. So when I went back home, I, I ended up being a volunteer coach or volunteer assistant coach at my high school, old high school, uh, just helping out whenever I could and doing individual trains whenever I could. So I just felt like there was something I can give back to the game. It gave me so much. So I just caught this bug. I never expected it to be in the situation I'm in now. Never. I, I never once sat down and said, I want to be a professional head coach. I just sort of bought my time and put the hours in and um, yeah. So I, I really started off making my own little business cards, uh, giving them out, uh, doing individual sessions and uh, yeah. And then I ended up finding a, or as I was doing an individual session, a parent was walking by and their kids, his kids team was looking for a coach. So I said, yeah, sure. What the heck? And then bang. And then the next thing, you know, a training organization asked me to join on with them. So it just happened to be the right place at the right time. And, and here we are. Um, that's how, typically not, that's really how I got started. 
and a, a lot of coaches we speak to kind of talk about this right place at the right time idea. But I think as well, there's a lot of there's a lot of preparedness that gets you to that point as well. Like, yes, you might not be the finished article, but as you get to that opportunity, you've done a lot of work to be ready to take it when it comes, I imagine, as well. Yeah, I mean, it's what you do when you get that opportunity, right? So when I when I got that first team, I I really, you know, I was only 22 years old and I was, you know, reading books and looking at exercises because the game, uh, it was back when I was playing, you you were being coached by a parent, you know, so there wasn't the professional dynamic to it. So I, I started reading books and then what I started doing is I started getting some, you know, exercise books and stuff like that. Uh, and I just looked at the exercises and made them my own. I'm not one that copy and pastes. Um, you know, my players will tell you now, like we do passing sequences now and they'll never see the same one any given day. It's always something new. So if we have 300 sessions, we're going to have three different, 300 different passing sequences or whatever the exercise. So, uh, yeah, you just, you have to be creative in this, in this job and you have to evolve, but you have to have a picture an idea. Uh, and as, and as I started to evolve more as a coach, I looked at it as, uh, as almost like a painter and you have a blank canvas and you take that blank canvas, you're the director and you make it your own. And that's really what, what's helped me get through to this, to the stage I'm at right now. I, I think I, I promise when I started this, I've said this many times that I would ask the questions that I think people listening will say, oh, ask him this, ask him that. And I think people will want to delve into what you've said there about how you plan a training session or a series of training sessions. They definitely want to know how it works in the professional game and how you and your staff get to actually decide the exercises and activities. But also perhaps for people in leadership positions, it may be in the world of work. You know, you, you and your staff are with the same players pretty much for a long, long period of time, a lot of hours during the day, and it's a lot of high-stress situation. So maybe if we start with the first part of this question, how do you how do you overcome that? The sheer fact that you're together so much and, you know, there's all this kind of interrelatability and you're still trying to achieve an objective, but you must make it interesting every single day. Surely there must be a challenge. Yeah, I, I especially at this level where you're dealing with players who really get it right. And they, I think so often you hear uh, people say after 15 players can't be developed. And that's not something that we as a staff believe in. We think anyone can be developed. We think, you know, the one thing I think there's a misnomer out there is that professional players want to learn just as much as the U10 player. It's just how you do it. And it's the level of detail and they want to know exactly bang, here's where I'm at. And this is what I need to do. They don't want black and white. So yeah, it's that's that's the intriguing thing is how do you sit down and how do you create a plan or an exercise that is going to stimulate the players' brains and make them think differently and make them feel like they're being challenged. The one thing that I have a rule of is when you step inside the lines, the players have to be challenged technically, tactically, physically, and mentally. Um, that is an everyday process, and if we can if we can hammer those out, then we'll always get better. Um, so again, I think a lot of it though is is having a style of play and identity, and then now you can go work backwards, right? So you have this identity, you have the style of play. Okay, what is it, what do we want it to look like? We let anyone can come watch our training sessions. It doesn't. It's we're open, we're open door as long as we're told ahead of time. So people can come watch it. But I think what people will be surprised about is we don't do sessions in, in big grids. 
everything is in really small, tight spaces because it stimulates the brain. It makes them think quicker. It makes them react quicker. It makes their body shape be a little bit different in quicker times. They have to recognize space quicker. And then when you get to the bigger field, it translates, and now they're now it's slower for them. The processes are slower for them, and that's what we want. And it's less boring. It's less monotonous. So, uh, but yeah, we 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 always go in. Okay, what do we want today to look like? And then we work backwards. We work from big to small. What do we want our end picture to look like? How do we want to do it? And then we work in the negative. So that's really what a daily process looks like. And obviously, it'll, it'll be extremely highly periodized in terms of the sports science side, the tactical objectives you want to achieve and the, the state of the season that you're in, I'm sure. But we've had a couple of players on who have alluded. We had Remy Allen on the first ever guest. Remy's just finished her playing career in the WSL and now she's transitioned to become England and the 23 women's coach. And she was telling us as a player that sometimes you just you still want a game. You still want a small sided competition. Like, how do you manage um, you know, obviously the, the need for the working week and getting to Saturday ready, but also giving the players perhaps a little bit of what you know they want as well. I mean, that's always the battle, right? So the way we work is we don't really periodize. Um, we don't, I don't believe in the, I don't follow the stopwatch mentality, um, which not to say doing that's wrong. It's just what we do. So basically what it looks like is if we have a game on a Saturday, Sunday is a recovery day. Monday would be off. And then Tuesday we would get them back in with smaller exercises. So we start sort of in the green and then Wednesday, if we play again, following Saturday, Wednesday would be an 11 v 11 session. So we would still work in smaller components and work our way up. So that would spike. And then we'd come back down and then we work our way back up to where we're spiking again on the Saturday. So we have one of the best performance guy coaches around and Mike young, um, and uh, that's that's really how we work. But everything's got to be at a high intensity. On an average, you know, we're looking at fifty-five to six thousand meters a session. Um, you know, we we've, we've talked with some players that have come to us, and we usually go about seventy minutes. And they say what we do in seventy minutes here, some clubs or some teams are doing it in three hours of training. So that intensity is really important for us. But we always finish with a small side of game or an eleven v eleven game in training. They always have the competitive. Everything that we do um, is competitive. Nothing we do is pattern play. We we really get after it because that's what the players want. Absolutely, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I want to come back to Mike Young if I can because there might be a lot of young, uh, you know, aspiring um, coaches out there who who got to go into the kind of work that Mike's doing, and that sounds really interesting as well. But just to finish on that one, I know you obviously have links to the to the, the Tar Heels program and to the, the great program going on at UNC there and everything else. You know, Anson's famous for talking about the competitive cauldron and everything you're describing there as well. This is something that in the pros, you still run with as a major thread as well, you're saying, yeah? Yeah, it's just, it's just more natural, uh, the competitiveness. I mean, again, you're dealing with paid professionals and, and you're dealing with players who... You know, they they see it differently at times. You know, th this is what they're th they're getting paid to do a job. So I think at the end of the day, they when I say that, it's just different than maybe going to an office, right? So their office is inside the lines and they want to be great at what they do. So they're always competitive. They're always pushing. They're always challenging each other, but they're not doing solely for themselves. They're doing it to help the team get better each time, too. So um, that's the that's a different mentality. Whereas sometimes at the younger ages, there could be that hesitancy of I'm working. People think they're working for themselves uh, in their own development, uh, and then when things don't go their way, they turn off. Uh, we don't really we haven't had that issue. 
Uh, we're fortunate with the players we have in our in our locker room. And uh, yeah, I think it's more of a natural competitive cauldron. Oh, I said I'll come back to Mike. It's Mike Young, yeah, you mentioned. Um, can you talk to us perhaps from a, a head coach's point of view, why Mike is so good? What is the kinds of things that he does and makes him so influential for you and your role? Because then if we have people listening who want to go into that role, we'll benefit them. And obviously head coaches, people who want to be where you are, they know what to look for and in, in more successful in the high-performance team. Yeah, I mean, he. there's a lot of great performance coaches in the women's game right now. Um, but Mike, he's the only one I've worked with a couple others, but in, in the role that I'm in now, Mike provides a lot of insight and detail into the, again, it's another thing that's evolving, right, every day. So, you know, he's real specific and detailed. He's got a good feel and sense of what each player needs are. Um, he's got a good sense of monitoring the players' bodies and their recovery processes. He, he spends, I mean, he has his own, uh, what he, it's what they call the, it's the athletic lab. Um, so he's, you know, it's all performance based, but he's, he's worked with some of the best athletes in the world. He's worked with NBA players. He's worked with NFL players, worked with Olympians. Um, he, he's just someone that, that really understands it, but he's also someone that is not wanting, he's not, doesn't really hold players back unless obviously injury reasons, but he, if we're not pushing hard enough, he'll tell me we need to go harder. We need to go longer. Um, he's not one to say, Hey, look, we got to slow down here. We talked about that before training, as long as we're hitting this sort of this middle range, he's real brave about it. And, you know, I think he's opposite of maybe what a lot of others do where they're so worried and cautious of it. Uh, I will say this about our players that if we don't work at a higher intensity, they will complain. Uh, they'll say we didn't get enough out of it. He'll push the players beyond, but he, the players trust him. You know, he knows them personally and and has a great relationship with them. They trust him. And um, yeah, I mean, his, his care for the program, his care for what they do is so important, but it's just a level of detail that he puts in that is so important that I think sometimes people use GPS numbers, but they don't really translate what those GPS numbers mean, you know, and, and for us, it's not individual as much as it is positional. So uh, he, he puts a wealth of time into it and helps us as a staff be able to prepare for the next day and then heading into the weekend. It's really interesting how you say there, how that, again, it's built on trust. And in terms of more than just numbers, what do those numbers mean? What do they mean for me in my position? And more importantly, perhaps, if we're honest, Sean, what do they mean for the manager? You know, is, is the manager going to pick me because of X, Y, and Z? And I, I suppose that whole matrix of player understanding what it is you want and what you expect and then delivering and then being rewarded on the back end with playing time or whatever it is, improved contracts or or development or whatever it is, that whole circle keeps continuing to go around, yeah? Yeah, and again, it goes back to our style of play, right? It goes back to what, uh, what do we need to identify our certain players at in certain positions to be able to do certain things that we need in our in our the way we want to play. So if that means a high press, if that means you have, everyone has to be able to defend individually, everyone has to be able to defend collectively, everyone has to know their um their roles and responsibilities to make us successful and if you can't cover the ground that we need you to cover that makes it more difficult if that means that you're not doing the extra work then that's going to make it more difficult because someone else is uh, mike's really accessible and and the players have an you know they have an opportunity to work with him as much as they want the players that do will be ready the players that don't will be behind and uh, it, it always it's always going to go back to what do we need of those particular players and those roles in how we want to play. 
um, it'll always go back to that. So he knows, Mike knows what our certain, you know, our outside backs need, need to be able to do something different than maybe our center backs. Our center backs or midfielders need to be do something different than our nine. So he, how we used to play to how we play now, it's different. And even he's learning. You know, we, we used to be very transitional back in the day. Now we're more possession-based, so our numbers are different. You know, years ago, our center backs were some of our higher numbers because the game was like this. Now our center backs were our lowest numbers, and he didn't realize why until we changed our style. I'm like, it's because they're on the ball. We lose the ball less. Uh, we maintain uh, possession of the game more. We have a hold of the game more. So we're minimizing, if anything, the amount of running so that when we have to win it back, their strength of running is a lot higher. So, uh, yeah, it, it's all connected. It's just a matter of what are those roles and responsibilities. I was going to allude to the change uh, in the team. Obviously, we talk a little bit off air there, but I, I remember coming to North Carolina College in 2017 with FC Kansas City. I don't know if you were there at the time, um, but they beat us 2-0 and absolutely ran over the top of us. We barely had a kick. And the North Carolina College team of then versus the team of now, I think, is very different. I think there's probably, like you said there, a much more nuanced possession-based model. Um, not that it wasn't bad back then, but it was. I remember we, we prepared all week not to give away a single corner and not to get hit on the counter-attack, and we still got run, run over. And it was, you know, that was the courage. Courage was probably one of the first to come along and do that back in those days. We'll be talking six years ago now. But, um, yeah, really interesting how teams evolve and develop over time. Is that something... Because you started in an assistant role there and then became the head coach. Was that something that when you got the reins for yourself, you thought, this is the change I want to make or need to make? Or was it more of an organic thing, how that came about? Uh, I always knew that, like, I started implementing what I did with the academy. Um, you know, from the uh, from the Youth Academy, the Courage Academy. That's where, where I started to get my ideas and put them in place, you know, possession style. And I always knew that, when I, if I ever had, if I was ever fortunate enough to become a head coach, this is how I would want to play. This is what I've studied the most. This is what I've observed the most. This is how I see the game. Again, my opinion and how I see it. Um, that's the great. That's the beauty about the sport. There's no wrongs. Uh, so when I when I did it last year for the first time, it was it was a foreign concept for a lot of people because every, a lot of the players were so used to how we used to play. Whereas now we've brought players in that play more of a possession based and a positional play based. Uh, it allows for us to go and identify those players. We don't have the speed and athleticism that maybe we had of years past. I mean, 2017, 18, 19, people can arguably say we had the best players in the world in every position. We don't have that as much anymore, if any. So um, I think for, from that standpoint, that's, I, I knew that if I ever got a job that this, I, people used to ask me, is this what you would do? And I say, yeah. And people always say, well, it won't work in this league. What is, I always used to say, well, what is won't work in this league? It's, it's, a, it's a process. And now you saw what we did this year and people were talking about it. And I think we caught a lot of people by surprise in a good way. You certainly did. Uh, I want to I pick up on that, it won't work in this league line, because there's a lot of people I hear, I've been in the States now for almost a decade, and I, I hear a lot and have heard a lot it just won't work in the youth game. It just won't work in this college conference. It just won't work in this league. It just won't work for our national team. When you hear those words, you must have felt like a lot of people do. It isn't just an abrupt you know, evasion and I'm going to do it differently for the sake of it. You actually feel that that statement is incorrect. So how do you 
how, first of all, how do you how do you deal with that? And how do you sell that then to the the staff and the players that have to come on this journey with you? Because if they don't come with you, it's been much harder for you to get across that line, isn't it? In terms of changing things like you want to change. Yeah, I think it's a belief, right? It's it's just a, it's just an absolute belief in in what you and how you want to play and what you want to do and a belief in how you want to teach it. Um, you know, the staff piece, if you look at the staff I have, it's all, I mean, Nathan used to be with me at the academy. Emma used to be with me in the academy. Vic, I have known when I worked a couple of camps with her in the national team for Brees. I just happened to know when he was a volunteer assistant with Chicago Red Stars. And they were all aligned in how we want to play. Um, so you need that with some flexibility in there, obviously, and different insights. But no, I think if you trust and believe in what you've done, <clears throat> it'll always come place. And, and I think it's just, it's just being patient and, and, and showing the trust in, in the process. Right. So I don't, I'm not one to hear it won't work and say, Oh yeah, you know what? You're right. Then I might as well get out of the business that I'm in. Um, because people probably told Pep it wasn't going to work. People probably told uh, Joe and shooting national team, how you're going to play is not going to work. It could work. You just have to give it time. You have to allow insight. You have to allow education of these players. Um, the development processes need to be a little bit better in this country, in my opinion. Uh, everyone's so worried about winning. That's just a typical American thing, which isn't necessarily bad, but it shouldn't be at the sacrifice of develop development. Um, but again, it's, uh, uh, it's the only way I see the game being played. Um, and it's been uh, it's been a pretty cool cool trans transformation of the group, and they've really loved it. I had a player tell me middle of the season, I feel like I'm learning something new every day, and that's a pro. Yeah, you know, so that means we're doing something right. That's and that's huge. That doesn't that that note there won't go unmissed by any of the people working in the game who are listening right now because of yeah. everything that's behind the statement like that as well. You alluded a little bit there to the to the youth game, and it's a hot, hot topic right now. We heard. Some comments from Carly Lloyd recently, you know, quite quite damning of it all, and I wouldn't expect you to go there. But what, what where is the balance here? How are we going to get this right? What what if there's a coach out there in the youth game listening to this, and they've tuned in to hear, you know, Sean has the, the the North Carolina Courage manager, and you know, coming from somebody at the highest level of the game, what should the focus be? Obviously, winning is important. It's not a bad word. It's not a dirty word, especially in America. But as you said there, in terms of at the cost of development, where's the balance? Where's the line? What do you say to those coaches who are doing amazing jobs, working really hard? What do you say to them? Um, I, I would always go back to ask those coaches, who are you watching on the weekends? Which teams are you watching on the weekends? If people say I'm watching Liverpool's and Man City's and Barca's and all those teams and you love the way they play, why then when you go work with your team, do you do the complete opposite of what you think is the beautiful game? It doesn't. You see what I'm saying? So you're watching them for a reason. It's because you think what they're doing is right. You know, the Brightons of the world. Perfect example. Look at the Zerbi. I mean, he's going in with the lower, lower group. And he's playing some of the greatest football in the, in the world. Um, I look at it like this. I look at it as football coaches in the youth game as teachers. That's what we are. Um, and 
when you are a teacher in school, what have you, you don't go into your fifth grade class and say, you're not going to be able to get to 12th grade. Your job is to develop them to be able to get to sixth grade and seventh grade and eighth grade so that those foundations are put in place. So we shouldn't look at it any differently because we're football coaches and the results are based on uh, winning and losing. That winning and losing should be holistic. It shouldn't be solely based on results, a win, loss, or draw. Unfortunately, the competitiveness of the of the clubs now, it's become a marketing piece. Oh, we beat this club or we beat that club, and I get it. But if you truly believe and you've sold the vision to your fam to your families and they believe in it and you explain this is how we're going to do it, they're going to do it. They're they're cool with it. It's when you just say, uh, we're going to win and we're going to play the game this way, and all of a sudden it becomes this launching mechanism. It's complete opposite because you're selling a bill of goods that maybe not there. So I would always go back to the teaching piece. Uh, you know, I think Dave, the perfect the perfect example for me as well is people see us do a lot of passing sequences unopposed, and they're like, oh, that's useless. I'm like, okay, so I did a coaching course, a coaching presentation with some coaches. And the first slide I had up was, uh, you know, when you do, when you're first learning to write letters and you have like the outline piece along the line, you have to keep rewriting the letters. I said, what's the difference between that and an unopposed technical pattern? And they're like, well, I'm like, there is no well. You're learning the foundation of how to pass, just like you learn the foundation of how to write. You don't just wake up one day and learn how to write a poem or a story. You have to know how to write the letters. So that's how I've equated it. And that's, I think, the best way to educate people. It's just all about education. It's really what it comes down to. Investing those directors and executive directors out there, right. investing in their own staff, in their own in their own culture, in their own... And these words are thrown around a lot, I understand. But ultimately, you know, if you are out there on the grass and players feel like they're developing... That's that's the battle, isn't it? Because I've always said, I've said this on the podcast a few times, that nobody's really developing players in America for their own first team, are they? Not really, not yet, anyway. You know, you kind of develop them as a youth player, they go off to college, well, you're not going to see the benefit of that. You could look at it that way. And even um, even the professional clubs who have youth teams, most of the time, the kids are going to go off to college. We're starting to see a ch trend change, and I want to get into that with you as well, because that's really exciting. But a lot of, in Britain and in the UK and Europe, if you have a player at seven years old, you could be developing an asset or a player for your first team, men's and women's. Uh, it's very different here in the United States. Do you think that plays a factor in some people's thinking as well? Yeah, it's massive. I, I remember I was I uh, went to Spain for two and a half, three weeks a couple of years ago just to observe. I went on my own just to observe and study. I was at Real Madrid. I was at Barca. And I was talking with one of the coaches there. I said, what's your role? It was a second team coach. I said, what's your role? Um, and obviously the second team, the first team can't be in the same league. Uh, and I said, and he said, my number one responsibility is to develop a player to be sold. It's not about where I finish on the table. It's about developing players so that they can either be in the first team or sold, uh, from a financial standpoint. And I'm like, well, that would never, 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 ever, ever survive here. It's, it's. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's a different it's a different way of thinking. And again, it, it's I think so often we we look back and it becomes the blame game, right? It's like uh, you know people complain about well we're not winning World Cups or we're not doing this or we're not doing that, but yet we have to look back and say did we coach that player or have we coached those players? 
where was I in their development process? Where did they struggle? Where do they do? What do they not do? Um, we all have a hand in it. And that's the exciting part. We all have a massive hand in this. Like we're all in this together, believe it or not. It shouldn't be about a battle. It shouldn't be about, uh, you know, I, I have, even when I was starting here in the youth game, someone told me I had I took a team over that had like different coaches every year. And they said, don't try and teach them how to play. Cause they knew how I was. They said, don't try and teach them how to play. I said, well, then I'm, I don't want to coach the team. Cause that's all I know. Yeah. And then we ended up winning three straight, straight uh, state championships and we played unbelievable football and people were like silent, you know, because you just have to give people, you have to give the players uh, a part of feeling that you're investing in them and feeling as though, Hey, look, we can do this. Who cares what everyone else says? We're going to make this happen. We're going to make it work. We may struggle, but we're going to get through it. And there's no greater thing at the end of the day. And then you have those players in the palm of your hand to say, hey, let's continue on this ride together. So I just, I don't know. I just think there's so many different dynamics and there's so many different tables and everyone wants a seat at the table, but yet we all have a seat at the table. We just have to be willing to do it in a way that we feel is beneficial to the player development. That's what we're all in this for. And I think clubs have to look at it and say, what's our identity? What's our style? What's our vision? Too many times in clubs, it's individual coaches, individual teams, and now they don't, there's no set piece. And that's why you see less likelihood of teams of players going up in the ladder because coach A is coaching one way. Coach B wants a different type of player. And now yeah. you can never have progression. There should be a set. Like that's why our academy kids can come in and train with our first team because we play the same way. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard, isn't it, for, for parents out there who might be listening or aspiring coaches. It's very difficult to understand until you've been through the process at least once that the player that isn't being developed in the way they need to maybe having short-term success. They might be scoring a goal or using a skill or technique in a particular way, kicking the ball over a goalkeeper at youth age, whatever it might be. And when they get to 16, they hit this wall because they haven't developed the technique or the skill or the ability to anticipate and then they don't know as a player why they can't do what they used to do. And when they look around then for help, that coach who did that for a few years is gone and they wash their hands of the situation. And that's unfortunately what we have a lot of adolescent, young or sort of late teenagers feeling at the moment. And, and ultimately that leads to dropout or burnout or, or, or not achieving potential. And the coaches that are being that way might just wash their hands of that and move on. Yeah, the one thing I always say is, um, I used to tell my players this all the time, I don't need the best athletes. I need players that are willing to become footballers because tactically smart and technically savvy and proficient players will normally or usually outlast athletes. Whereas athletes have to be able to do both. Um, you know, because if someone wants to come high press us and high press us and high press us and I give a good angle to receive and I break that line, that run is a useless run. Yeah. So that's how I always, obviously you want to have a good mix and bow. They're all athletes, but pace, I should say more than anything. So, you know, you look at today's, today's setup, it's, whereas you can always identify where the best athlete's going to be. Right? To kick this on then, aspiring young female player out there now playing, doing extra training out there, going to ID camps, trying to, trying to get recruited by college or be a professional player even. What, what advice do you give directly to them in terms of the work they're doing and the environments they're in? How can they best be using the time they have to prepare to one day walk out for a team like the North Carolina Courage in the league? Uh, I think the 
what people want to do in their own time, what they want to pay for is completely up to them. Um, the only, uh, I mean, that's their own choice. I would say whether it's a team setting or an individual setting, are you being challenged every single day? Uh, are you, are you working on the individual things that are specific to your position? Um, are you, uh, do you feel improvement, right? That's important. Do you feel that you're improving? Uh, and what's the, what's the, the benchmark to decide whether or not you're, you're improving because so many times it's out of your control, the decisions that are made. Um, but I always look at it as, do you feel what you're doing is beneficial for what you do? Like if you're not being stimulated in terms of your thought processes and you feel like you're improving in certain areas, then it should leave a question mark. Is this the right situation for me? Um, that's the one thing I would say, I, I, and I wouldn't give in to the pressures of what college you commit to. You're always going to find a place that is going to be great for you. Um, don't give in to what other people or where they're committing. That's their journey. Uh, be happy for those players. Uh, your journey is going to be something different, but don't feel that you have to do so much extra. Still be a kid, you know. Still be a young, a young female athlete, uh, uh, but also be a person that you can enjoy. You don't want to look back and miss out on anything. Perhaps just a note to those players who are in the middle of it and, you know, every year June 15th rolls around and some people get phone calls, some people don't. And that's just, like you said, every recruiting journey is different. You don't get somewhere like you've got, Sean. You don't get to the top level of the game without being knocked back, dealing with adversity, sometimes being, you know, in a lonely place in terms of how you get over the things that happen on the way up. So maybe a word towards those young players that maybe aren't where they want to be or kind of struggling to see the the path, um, you know, from you, who's someone who's come out the other side and is now at the highest level, maybe. Yeah, I think adversity is what makes us, right? I think so often setbacks is what provides us the strength to move forward. And I feel, um, you know, it's not even an injury. It's not like, those are just small little bumps that, and I call them speed bumps, uh, so that you can't go backwards. It just keeps pushing you forward. Right. There's no point in looking at it. So any bit of adversity, it's it's all in how you receive it. You know, I still I still deal with adversity. I still deal with setbacks. I still deal with hearing things I don't like to hear. Because it's only it's but it's only being told to you or done for you to grow. It's just how you receive it and how you want to work. You have, you're always gonna have two choices. You can ignore it and say, ah, whatever, or you can say, okay, why is this information being fed to me? Or why am I the one dealing with it? There's always something on the other side. Patience, uh, um, patience is the most important piece, um, discipline, uh, in that, but I think just knowing that everyone's journey in life is different, uh, and, and that's the part that welcome the adversity rather than just, just only wanting the success. There's more power in success with adversity because you were able to find things out about yourself that you didn't know you were capable of. So often when adversity hits, people say, I can't do this anymore. But you're net, so as a result, you'll never know what you're capable of. It's no different than a player being in college saying, I'm not playing a lot, I want to transfer. The transfer portal has now caused people to not be able to deal with adversity. If anything, it's allowed them to walk away from adversity. And uh, I think you have, to, you have to be willing to fight through that. There's nothing better than getting through it and proving people wrong.
So I think there's a lot of people listening in, in the industry, in the game, and aspiring coaches on, you know, listening to this today who will, they'll really want to know, Sean, what it is like for you on a day-to-day basis, steering the ship at the North Carolina Courage. You must have a thousand decisions to make a day. Some of them impact the result on Saturday. Some of them, perhaps more importantly, impact your relationship and your your working relationships with everybody. You can't possibly do it all, as you alluded to earlier, with the excellent staff you have around you. What What is life like for a manager in the National Women's Super League, you know, day to day? What is it like? Yeah, and I learned the hard way last year. It was just myself and two, Nathan and Emma. Those were the only two other coaches I had. So, and coming out of the, every, you know, obviously the stories um, and the, the situation that the league went through a couple of years ago, it was really a tough time. Um, so last year I was just trying to do everything myself and it just drove me up a wall. I wasn't myself. I didn't enjoy it as much. I, I felt like I was letting people down. I felt like I was letting myself down, the players down. I wasn't able to coach the way I wanted to coach. Whereas this year, now having extra staff, you can sort of dissect things a little bit more. But even then, I feel like I can still be, I can still do a better job of that. Um, you know, I, I like to take a lot of responsibility. Uh, and if things are going to go good, go well, everyone else is going to have the credit. If things aren't going to go well, then I'll take the, I'll take the nail in it for, for whatever reason. But what I'm still learning is it, it does when I do that, and I don't focus so much on the football. It takes away uh how i carry how i handle things you know and and i think the one thing i'm learning day by day is really just letting things happen naturally after we have people in roles that we have to trust them to be able to do those things um that's why they're hired to do those and i don't have to be involved as much as a young coach i think that's the hardest thing to figure out is you know you you're coming from an academy program where you have everything in your control and you're doing everything to now giving things up. And it's like, oh, I'm so used to doing this. That's my baby. And that's the, I think that's been the hardest adjustment for me. But on an everyday process, it's really, you get in at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. You're, you're planning sessions. You're checking in on players and with the performance staff. Um, you know, we're in a really small office together. And I like my own space. So normally, uh, um, you know, just because I know that's, I know that's, uh, the, the way I can function best when I'm not surrounded, like we're around each other so much that any extra time I can have my own. So even when we're in the office, there's times where I just sit in silence, you know, just doing my own thing. The coaches know that my head's down, I'm focusing on something or come up with a, a different strategy for the session or different ideas or different variations. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, players or we'll talk about, or we'll look at what is the, you know, we have Emma does the, the opposition analysis. So on Wednesday, she'll um, uh, she'll, she'll review it with the with the players, and then that's when we'll go into the eleven, the 11 situation and come up with the stuff to do that. Then on Thursday, she'll do the opposition analysis from a from the uh, opposition's in possession, so our out of possession, so us defending. Um, Nathan's in charge of game reviews, so every Tuesday I'll come in with the game review in possession. Of us, how we did from the previous game, Nathan will do the next day um, out of possession review. And then we'll go into the, now we're done with that past weekend and we'll go into um, the new weekend. Uh, so there's a lot of plan. There's a lot of video. There's a lot of explanation. You know, we do a lot of animations on the videos. So that's on average 
six hours per day you're, you're putting into animating uh clipping yeah. video and animating and i usually watch the game back two times one from the tv at tv camera and then one from the speedio camera um so yeah it's a lot of work but it's fun there's video you mentioned there the video how important is the video piece oh it's massive because players are visual learners um and they want to see exactly so every pick every video has an animation like you see if you're watching an nfl game the you know the the animation is built in so you know exactly these are the pictures they it allows the players to go specifically to the areas that we're focusing on in that clip. Um, so usually we do that from the buildup to the in possession in the midfield to the final third. Um, we have everything color coordinated. So our out, so our backs are in red, our midfielders are in yellow and our forwards are in green. Um, so they know exactly who's being highlighted in those moments. And uh, yeah, that's how we, that's how we code everything. That's a, that's a fantastic insight. I think there's a lot of people out there will start putting their defenders in red and their midfielders in orange and their attackers in green now, mate. That's brilliant. Um, and I think it's things like that that people really hang on to, isn't it? Everybody wants to kind of know. I think there's two reasons, isn't it? There's, am I doing it right? That's what a lot of young coaches or aspiring coaches are thinking. But also, if the pros are doing it, then it must be it must work. Yeah. So I think there's an element, and you said earlier about not copying and not cut and pasting. There's an element of guidance and seeing good practice, but then it's about, like you said, making it your own and turning, putting your own spin on it, as as you've alluded to there. I think what you're describing here is high performers, high performance management staff, and someone in yourself who ultimately knows now at this point in your career how authentically you bring the best out of yourself. To be able to say, I need to go and have a minute or I want to go and do this or a lot of high performers, there's so much research out there now, some great work. I'd encourage everybody out there to go and listen to things like the High Performance Podcast and Diary of a CEO, all these wonderful podcasts that you can get now where they interview high performers. But everybody's saying the same thing. You get to a stage in your career where you begin to work authentically to what you think is best for you. And perhaps younger in your career, you either haven't got there yet or you don't feel confident enough to, to do those kinds of things. You, you described there how you know how to get the best out of you, Sean. Was that a journey that you went on and one day realized, yep, I now know what it is? Or did you just get to the position where you were like, I got to do this because this is how I do my best work? No, I, I would probably say it goes back to what the adversity piece where you have to hear things that you don't necessarily like to hear, right? And uh, that happened two years ago, really. You know, so it doesn't matter how old you are, you have to be willing to listen and, and learn. And I think until, aside from coaching, being a head coach in the youth game, which is quite different, obviously, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you don't know until you're thrown in it here. You know, even as an assistant coach, players' relationships with yourself is very different. Most teams, the players are going to go to the assistant coach. So now I'm no longer their assistant coach. I'm now their head coach. So now they don't come to me for much. <laughs> because it's a whole different dynamic, but that's okay. That's why you trust your staff to be able to do it. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think you have to, you have to be willing to recognize and, and always self-evaluate and look at it. Like this sessions, I'll walk off saying, I didn't like that session. You know, I don't think, you know, what could we, you know, things like that, but that's the only way you're going to get better. You, but you have to be willing to listen. I shouldn't say that you have to be willing to hear what you're listening Anyone could say I'm listening, but are you really taking it in and processing it? And that's the difference. Isn't isn't that the magic of it? What a wonderful way to phrase it. Because I think in my twenties, I listened to a lot 
I don't think I heard a lot. In my 30s, I began to hear what the yeah. messages were. And if, if there's any success there, I think it's because of that transition you've just said. And we live in a world, Sean, don't we, of social media and everything's perfect, Instagram posts, nobody ever makes a mistake, everybody's wonderful. But the reality is, like you said, even now at the highest level, you come off session saying, no, I, I want to do that better. I wish I'd done this. And, and it's a constant process of improvement and development. And of course, you stay above the, the competency line, but you, you, you could always be better. We had, we had, I think, Rob Sherman on episode three here. Rob's a coach educator, been all around the world. And he said, all you do when you deliver a 10 out of 10 session is you raise the bar and the players now expect even more. So you never actually get to that 10 out of 10 you deliver a great session. Well, now the players are, are expecting even more of you next time, and it, it continuously moves on like that. How have you been able to? How have you been able to hear what needed to be here, Sean? When some people only listen, how have you developed that skill and ability to to self evaluate and obviously reach the top when perhaps some aspiring coaches can't or don't? Um, I think you have to be. I think a lot of it's based on like it's who you are willing to listen to. Like I, I always say, if you're not uh, someone who I want to listen to your opinion, right? So like if I'm not taking your opinion or if I'm not, if you're not someone I trust and I don't, I'm very cautious, right? So hearing something from someone that I truly trust and that has the benefit, has the best interests of me to help me grow, I'm all ears. If you're someone that uh, I wouldn't go to for advice, it doesn't, that's how I look at it, right? So if you're not someone I'm willing to go to advice for, then you probably, you and I probably won't have a, a strong, strong relationship. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but obviously some people trust others more than some. So I think, I think it's, something that we have to we have to really so one like you said self-evaluate and say what's going to make me tick what's going to make me learn and sometimes that's just surrounding it's always easier to, to hear things from people that you trust yeah because you know that they're in it for the right reason if someone just came up to me that i just met and is going to rip me apart for something it'll probably spark something in me that i don't really want to deal with you yeah. know um because I, they don't know me from a hole in the wall someone that met me for a day uh, and then it allows for open dialogue and open for that type of stuff. And then you can say, okay, well, how can I get better? How can I, who can I lean on more? It's having those types of people. Uh, but then you also have to be willing to hear them out when they, when they come to you and things you don't want to hear. And That's so true, isn't it? And, and there's probably people listening in other walks of life outside of professional sport as well, who might be working in industry or in a team somewhere else in a different industry. And, and, you know, how good are they, how good are you at, at listening to that feedback and gaining that feedback? And not for nefarious purposes, as you said, not everybody in a position of mentorship or power does want to give you good advice for your own reasons. You've got to kind of decide for yourself. That's the joy in life, isn't it? You've got to decide if anybody's worth listening to or, or worth being being respected. But, you know, sometimes a job title in industries outside of soccer, sometimes a job title doesn't necessarily give you that. But but you'll know in your heart, won't you, whether I should listen to this person whether or not they're authentic, whether or not they've treated you right in the past. And I suppose what you're saying to aspiring coaches out there, people trying to follow and emulate in what you've done is go out and search for those people. And if you're not in that room, maybe maybe it's not as drastic as find another room, but find the right people is what you're saying, isn't it? Oh, it's it's everything. I mean, it could be it could be players. 
sometimes they're the most valuable piece. If a player's, you know, asking players, what do you think? You know, how can I be better? What can I do to be better? Obviously age appropriate, you know, in terms of some, the older the player, the more insight they'll give you, but you have to earn that trust with them as well. And you have, they have to know that, okay, if I say something that, you know, we, we, you're not doing it individually, you're doing it collectively as a team. Hey, how can, what can I do to help you all be better? You know, I think if, if a young group of players hears that from their coach, it's a game changer. You know, for me, I can go to maybe one player, two players, three players, just because they're older and they, they have no problem telling me. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's something that coaches should be hesitant on because your number one job is to help the players. And in order to help the players, you have to be the best version of yourself. Without any shadow of a doubt. And I, I hope and I think that the industry has moved on from perhaps where we might have been maybe 10, 15 years ago in terms of this level of control. There would have been a lot of vulnerability in terms of a professional coach turning to a team and and saying, you know, what do you think or what do you like? And you've got to be very strong in your own mindset as you are to, to do that. Um, and you also got to be prepared for that comeback, haven't you? Like they might say something you haven't thought of or they might say something you fundamentally disagree with. And then you've got to manage that situation as well. It's not about just asking them, you know, how would you do this? And then they tell you and you go, OK, yeah, I'll just do it all. So I think That's we're in a space now, aren't we? That's the key thing. It, it, don't ask unless you're willing to listen. Mm. Mm. I, I feel like maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a reluctancy to open up in that way. Maybe there wasn't. I don't know why. I don't know why people were that way, but there was this level of control. It, I, I don't think it can work anymore in 2023 without this collaborative approach, whether that's a formal or informal one. Uh, that doesn't mean that the coach isn't an expert or the head coach doesn't have his, you know, his or her hand over the top of everything and it's guiding everything. But I, I think the days of, you know, the Hollywood movies of the one person standing at the top shouting and screaming and developing grit, they, you know, thankfully, I think we moved on. Yeah, and, and probably should have a long time ago. I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about, so when we had Jodie Taylor on the on the podcast a few episodes ago, and Jodie was talking to us about her career and the different managers she had, and she alluded to the fact of perhaps one of the most difficult parts for you as a manager, as a head coach is, you know, when you have to leave people out the team or when you have to leave them out the travel squad or whatever it might be. And she was saying that she had a manager at Leon who, even though she might not have been in the team or in the squad or got the role she wanted, that manager still made her feel you know, valued and, and wanted and respected, where there's pretty much in other, in other parts of her career, she'd had managers who, who wouldn't, and, and I quote, she said, they wouldn't even look her in the eye if they walked down the corridor. And that, that struck me as a, a very practical and visceral example, because I imagine two people walking down a corridor and trying to avoid each other's eye gaze. Where, where, where are we with this, with professional players and professional coaches? Like, Surely there's not coaches out there just ignoring players because they've left them out and then calling them back in a week later and saying, go and do your best. I mean, you know, that's that's not where we are, is it? No, I don't. It's, it is a tough line, I think. I mean, it's probably something that I could be better at, too, um, you know, because you feel it's a fine line because. Player, not a fine line, but players want to know what they can do to perform and be better. And if they're not, but then when you tell them. Like I remember I read, I read, I heard Pep do an interview and he said, someone asked, have you talked to the players about getting in the, in the lineup of the roster? He goes, no, why would I? 
Yeah. Because no matter what I tell them, they're not going to be happy. So why am I going to tell them? You know, and then I listen to Arteta and Arteta said he puts his his roster and lineup out when the players walk into the dressing room for game day. That's an hour and a half before the game, two hours before the game. So it's a fine, it's a fine thing. I look at it from a training perspective. How are you tra- how are you treating the players during training? And are they all getting the same information? That's the most important piece. Uh, well, that's a really important piece, not the most important piece. But I think the communication thing is such a hard thing because you know, you call a player to tell them you're not getting rostered. You know, I would say this if it's a one-off, okay. You just let it go. If it's five, six games in a row, then they probably need to know what the what the situation is. For us this year, there wasn't that case, you know, whether it was injury related or players, you know, we just had the right rotations. But if I if anything I learned, if there's something I would have changed is maybe not telling a player again, my only my second year being a head coach. Um it, it it it's the dynamic of if it's not working or if I'm not if you're not getting rostered for five six games in a row they deserve to be told but now I'm realizing they should probably be told every week that means you're having 12 conversations every week and if if it's not going to be a long-term thing you know what what are you going to say we're going with this player because they provide what we need uh for this particular game you can only say that so many times right so you want to let things evolve and flourish and develop to say, okay, these are the, these are the things that we see you're deficient in. We like to press this way. We like to attack this way. You suit us here. You don't suit us here. And that's, that's a hard thing to tell a young player. Um, So to be honest with you, I'm still navigating that because I don't want to let people down, but they also want to know. But then when you tell them, it's like, where is this going to go? I don't necessarily want to hear that either. Uh, I think, yeah, what Jody alluded to, and we've had a couple of um, male players in the Football League on as well, and they've all said the same thing. They kind of want honesty, and I'm sure they do to a certain extent. It's harder for them to hear in the moment, but I think they've all said when they reflect and go back, as long as they've had honesty and and the trust is there, they don't mind getting, um, everyone wants to play, but they don't mind getting tough news as long as, you know, they feel like that it's coming from a, a good place. So yeah. that is obviously one of the most difficult parts of, of being a manager, selecting the team, putting the team out there. You know, everybody's kind of got an opinion. It's it's not like a lot of industries, is it, right, where, you know, a surgeon goes to work, he's not going to have his work or her work commented on, you know, in the in the surgical room at the time they're performing it. But there's 30,000 people behind you telling you that you've made the wrong decision or you've, you've not uh, put the right substitute on. So... You know, we deal with this in our industry. How, how, how have you learned to deal with that? Because that's not something that the high-performing professional people have to deal with, is it? Uh, I. It's funny. Like, we're, Our bench is really close to our, our fans. And the beginning of the year, when we started passing back like negative to our keeper, it was like the world was coming to a screeching halt. Uh, they freaked out. Like, what are we doing? The other goal is the other way and stuff like that. And... You just sort of let it happen and educate them because they're not football fans in this country. They're still learning it. it they're yeah, still young. No, so, can, I, can I ask you this? Sorry, Joe. Can I ask you, like, when you hear a comment like, we're shooting the other way, there must be a part of you that kind of wry smile at things, really. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I turn around and laugh or <laughs> shake my head. And, and towards the end of the season, it was yeah. like they knew exactly what we were doing. So you didn't hear those yeah. comments anymore. Yeah. Because they saw the success in what we were doing, and there's a reason why what we were doing. My job, not that, I, I, it's, the job is multifaceted. Obviously, you're developing players. You're trying to put a product on the field that people can enjoy and be entertained by. 
but it's also how we play is to also educate these young fans to say, why are we playing this certain way? And then when they see us leading in certain ways, it's all about the press conferences that you hold and what you say because they're listening. Um, but I don't, it doesn't phase me in the least. People can say whatever they want on Twitter and all that's X, whatever it's called now. And, you know, they can say what they want because all they're doing is hiding behind the screen. And, uh, you know, there's been a couple of days where I've woke up on a Monday and I was going to put a post a picture on X of a quarterback in an armchair and, you know, basically have you know plus equals and put a soccer fan there. But, you know, look, they're just, they're paying their, their money. We support them to, they want to come watch us on the weekend. They want to see a good product. We feel we're doing that. And I think what we've done this year has gained a lot of fans back. So that's been pretty cool. Yeah. And I think it's important to say as well, as you are saying there, that the fans, you know, they get behind the team. They love the team. Yeah. They love the brand. They always have, you've always had, kind of had a really special, you know, relationship there in terms of you were different. You came on the scene different ever since your inception as a, as a, as a club. And, and you've always had this, um, you know, you've always had this synonymous support from the fans there. And there's always going to be one or two that, like you oh, said, yeah. don't understand it or don't get it. That's that's everything. <laughs> In general, the, the fans of women's football and 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 where, that's where we're going now, isn't it? I mean, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have had anybody this invested in, in the playing style of the team. There just would have been a couple of people watching and that was it. So that's the natural progression of professional sport, isn't it? When the, As the crowds increase and the stadiums get bigger now, the, uh, the pressure ramps up and, and everybody's opinion is much more polarised. So I want to talk really quickly about um, perhaps an area we haven't talked about before on the podcast, the, the press and the press conferences, uh, or the pressers, as I've heard them called lately. Apparently that's the new buzzword. I'm getting a bit old and I don't really stay on top of this stuff. But the presser, um, you know, you sat there, they throw a camera in your face, a microphone in your face minutes after the final whistle and... You know, we, you know, we all know examples of wonderful press, uh, you know, things that we've seen from managers over the years, but it must be difficult. That must throw up its own set of challenges for people aspiring, coming up, wanting to follow in your footsteps. What advice you give them? Uh, you know, surely they're not just waiting until they get there and then deal with it then. What advice you give them as, as, as you obviously handle it very well? Yeah, I think you have to be honest with them. You know, that you take the emotions out. Uh, the tough part is you're doing them 10 minutes after. I think the one thing I've learned this year and the one thing I've stayed pretty true to is whether we win, lose, or draw, still be the same, you know, in the training dynamic. It doesn't change anything. As long as the players are going and trying to apply our principles and play this, the way we want to play, then everything's cool. Uh, um, I'm I'm all good with the pressers unless someone's trying to pry or make a, you know, clickbait type thing. That's the one thing that'll drive me crazy. So if I if I read between the lines, I'll, I'll say something. But... Um, no, I think, look, they're doing their job, right? They have to end. So just like anything else, I, I have an obligation to answer the questions that they have. It's just being professional about it. It's being respectful about it. Uh, it's trying to spin it in a positive light, but also know that you can't lie. Um, if you don't, you know, I'm not one to say we played really well and we lose three nothing. You know, I think, I think at the end of the day, you have to, there's a, there's a give and take, right? You have to layer it so that you're still answering their questions, but I'll always try and spin it so that it benefits our players and protect our players and our fans. And, and uh, that's really important, but they're just doing their job and you have to be respectful of it. Yeah, of course. And you, you have to control the narrative, obviously to a certain extent as, as the head coach, I remember obviously when we were with England, we had three media messages we were up on the board after games and that was, it wasn't like you could only talk about that, but it was, this is the suggested 
uh, these are the suggested three things we'd like to go out there in terms of us all being on the same page. And, and if a player chose to go outside of that, that was their right. But invariably, um, you know, when everyone is together and they understand where we're going, that's generally a consensus that we got to after the games. And uh, I think it helped. I think it helped because you don't want to, that must be a nightmare for you. The last you wake up the next day and everything's popping off and so-and-so said this and they didn't really mean it, but they said it in a different way. And now you have another 27 problems to deal with, I suppose. Has that ever happened? No, I mean, no. I think if you speak the same message across the board to players and things along those lines, then the message, the players are always going to repeat the message. You know, if you start going all different tangents, the players will start to question what's going on here. So I try and keep the same message that I would in the press with our players, um, just so that, and you'll hear some of the players, they'll go into the press conference and say the same things. You know, so I think that's, uh, they want information from you as coaches uh, to to be able to use what information they have to, to speak about it or, but the values, the principles, all that stuff, the identity, our mission, our view, uh, it's pretty aligned without having to say it. The one, the one thing I've been pretty adamant about these these last couple, this last year was I'm just tired of the negative narrative. You know, so many people want to write stories about the negative, and I've I've been really pushing about, and I've got I probably snapped a few times just because I just got tired of it. You know, I I kept telling people, at what point are you going to write a positive story about us? What we're doing on the field is great, but what about all the other stuff like? I get why we took a black eye a couple of years ago. No problem. I'm all, I'm good with that. But we have to also look at the, what we've learned from it. Um, so yes, yeah, things like that. And I, that's the type of stuff people always ask, Oh, who's in your starting, who's in your starting level. I'm not telling you who's in my starting 11. Uh, I had a couple of people ask me, um, it was like the day it was like we played on a Saturday and they're like, so what do you think about your next opponent next week? And I just looked at him and said, I haven't even decompressed from this game. I'm not answering that question. And then she asked the same question the following week. I'm like, I'm not answering that. I, I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. I haven't even looked back at this game. Talk to me on Thursday when we have our next presser. So it's just like, come on, guys. Like, understand the role that we're in. Yeah. And, and they, I suppose most of them, they know what they're doing, don't they? But you're quite right. We live, unfortunately, in a world where, you know, one sentence or one thing is, is taken out of context. And ultimately, that's that's where the women's game is now. And, and that's a good thing because we want the attention and we want the, the transition that we've been on in the last five or six years, for sure, or 10 years, maybe. But um, yeah, it comes with its pitfalls as well. And I think it's just testament again, Sean, to your, your authenticity and, and, your, and your strength and the belief and your character in terms of yeah, like let's just deal with this. Let's just deal with the courage and, and, and what's happened in recent times. But let's look at the success you had in 2022 on the pitch. Let's look at the success you're having now and the transition of the team and where we're going um, in the league and, and, you know, the positive stories, like you said. And, and there's so much good work and enthousi enthusiastic optimism now, you know, with talk of Emma Hayes coming to the national team and where the, the Challenge Cup has been successful. We've had the, added that into the into the mix over the years. We got through the pandemic. The success that we had running the league through the pandemic was was world-renowned. And there's a lot of stories now. Yes, I understand. And, and I think it's a mark of you and your organisation to say, yes, we took a black eye over, over that, what happened, but let's move forward and look at what we're doing now. And I think there's a lot of people with you on that one, mate, in, in the women's game that want to want to see it go from strength to strength at this point. Yeah, I think the one thing I always say uh, more and more now is, 
you know, obviously for a couple of years, there was a risk, right? There's so much risk. And, and my comments now when I'm speaking to people or speaking to an organization or just whomever, an oppressor, it's the risk isn't investing in women's sports. The risk is not investing in women's sports um, because it's not going anywhere. If anything, it's getting stronger. So now is the time to jump on board because we're already, and people always say, well, you think the players deserve this? I don't think anyone's deserving anything. I think it's owed. It's owed to the players. It's owed to the club. It's owed to the league to help us get to where we want. We keep looking in the past um, with everything. Uh, the past is looked to is, is history to learn from. Now it's okay how we progressed, and then tomorrow it's looking back to today and saying how do, what could we have learned from today? Today it's it's all a part of the process, and um, I don't want to see us. I want to see us having a, a stronger vision. I think that's what's happening with the league and. That's why we're, we're, you're seeing a lot of growth uh, in the situation we're in right now. Absolutely. Couldn't have put that better myself. We're, we're in an exciting time. We've got expansion on the horizon again. We've got a lot of teams, a lot of you know really important uh, reiterations of current teams coming back around again. And we're seeing, we're seeing you know, some teams doing better than they've done in recent years again. And it is a very optimistic time, not just for um, the NWSL, but also you look at the success of the Super League and even some of the European teams that are coming back to the fore, the, the huge attendances we're seeing in Spain, the, the Italian League resurgence, we're seeing a lot of this across the board now. And I, I couldn't have put that better myself in terms of, you know, the risk is not in, in, in investing, the risk is in not investing. That, that's a fantastic statement, I think. As we, as we move forward then, as we wrap up, uh, we talked about, you know, the holistic development of players at the Courage and the plan that you have there and the, and the work that you're doing, which is obviously paying on off on the pitch in terms of results as well as we saw last year in 2022 as well. But I really wanted to get towards maybe some, and I don't want, wouldn't expect you to go and talk about individual players, but one quick look at some of the players that you have, you know, the Denise O'Sullivan's of this world, the experienced international players, and then um, Caroline, Caroline on the other side, you know, young Brazilian, already played 30 times for Brazil coming up. They, they're two completely different ends of the spectrum. In terms of managing the expectation of both players, managing talent, managing individuals, how, how do you go about that on a daily basis as a manager, as a head coach, when, you know, it's obviously very, very different ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, they all want to be great, right? So they're the standard drivers. And the one thing is I don't treat any of them any differently in terms of the standard. Some people may question that or say, well, I don't know if that's true. I'm going to hold Caroline to the same, a higher standard than maybe she's willing to to deal with. You know, she's the MVP of the league because of not, not because of us, but because of what the, the daily process that she puts herself in to be great. But it's also... We've had a big emphasis on the team dynamic this year. And you have a leader like Sully who comes every single day. She's old school. She doesn't want to deal with any BS. She doesn't want to deal with any complaining. Just get after it. She's not one to worry. You know, if you don't deserve to play and you don't play, then deal with it. Do change the coach's mind by how you perform in training every single day. You know, how you carry yourself. Um, so it's really just, again, it's it's the standards are driven within the training dynamic. It's It's the energy you put in and, you know, if a player should be receiving a ball a certain way, it's dropping, it's stopping and saying, adjust your body this way or adjust your body that way. Or next time think this way, you know, that's why I think we had success in the challenge cup because everyone was being taught the same stuff, you know? So Caroline's got to get the same information as Sully because they need to know what Sully has possession. Caroline needs to know what Sully's responsibility is. 
or vice versa. Uh, if Frankie's in possession, then Tess needs to know what that relationship is. If uh, KK is in possession, then Rumi needs to know what responsibility. So it's all interconnected in how we play. And as a result, it allows for us to be able to teach it more holistically rather than individually. I, I, I want to dispel a myth maybe for a lot of young aspiring female players, male players listening that, you know, there's a danger. You look at someone like Caroline and MVP of the league, like you said, and that everything goes right and she never made a mistake in her life. But actually, you and I know differently that you don't get to that level unless you have a great relationship with, with failure and want to come back from mistakes and want to learn. You must see that on a daily basis there. You know, what? how would you dispel this myth for aspiring players that they have to be perfect or they, they don't ever want to make a mistake? So many young players I see don't actually try to do things properly because they just want to stay in a bandwidth of what is acceptable. And we've been through this, haven't we? Why we think maybe they don't want to go too low or too high because they don't want to get screened at by some bloke who's just going to shout at them. Now, that's the youth game. We talked about it. But with someone like Caroline then and you fostering that relationship with failure and, and with success, what would your take be for the young aspiring players listening? Because failure is part of it, isn't it? You've got to be prepared to fail to be prepared to learn. Yeah, I, I don't think it's not just Caro. It's all of them. The one, if anyone comes watch our training sessions, you always hear me say, I don't care if you make a mistake. It's how you react to the mistake. Because, you know, if we're playing a certain way, we want to be able to win it back in seven, eight seconds. And you're worried about the turnover you just had a turnover another player had that's three seconds wasted so now you're back behind the ball five five seconds so it doesn't we don't care about the mistake it's all about how you respond it's like okay we lost how are we going to respond you know it's all about your response um but if i'm asking the players to play a certain way and they're trying to do it i don't need to tell a player they made a mistake they're old enough to realize i didn't pass the ball to the right teammate um but I would sum it up this way. Anytime you have a professional come to you, whether it's really any of them saying, Hey, what could I have done better? What could I do to get better in the middle of a game or at halftime or after a game that sums it up. That's why they are who they are. Um, and sometimes you just have to listen to what they're saying because Carol could have three goals in a game or, or no goals in a game. And she's going to ask the same question. She's going to get back to work the same way she did regardless. And, and you're absolutely right with the, with the professional players that I've come across and work with. Before you even brought it up, they, they kind of they say it for themselves, and they and they want to know more, and they want to and they want to they've got a vested interest, like you said, in, in in being better for next time. Perhaps we can sign off talking to you know the young Sean Nehas out there. They, they want to be where you are now. They maybe don't see a path all the way to to, to the professional game, or maybe they've had some setbacks or some you know, some bumps in the road what what can you say to them directly today for them to focus on perhaps you know more so than stick at it but you know what can what can they focus on wherever they are every day so they feel like they're getting a little closer to this dream because they're going to devote their lives to to following in the footsteps that, that you've walked so what would you say to them to sign off yeah i think the one thing the most important thing is it's not a straight line process and be great at where you're at right now you're not going to you're not going to continue to progress unless you become great at what you're doing right now that's how you get recognized that's how you continue to have buy-in that's how you get people to observe and, and and but it's also don't let others dictate your journey 
you know, if someone, you know, like I said, told you earlier, some people told me, don't try and teach this team how to play. And that's not, no one's going to dictate my journey. My journey is mine and I'll take information, but I'm going to still make it a part of what my journey is going to be. And I think the more we can embrace our own journey and understanding going in, there's going to be failure. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be delays. There's going to be setbacks. That's the best part about the journey. Anyone that wants an easy route, you're not going to get there. it's just not reality those that want the difficult route you're going to get where you want to be because you're willing to embrace all that comes with it um and you have to be willing to hear the negative feedback you have to be willing to hear um the things that you don't want to hear everyone likes to hear all your teams play such beautiful football you're you're such a great coach everyone wants to hear that Mm. but i think the most dangerous word in the in, in the vocabulary is the word want um i think it should be you know you have to be willing to uh embrace uh all all that comes with being successful because all those things that happen is what's going to make you great at what you do when you get there if you aspire uh, this is probably the best way i can sum it up david is people ask me all the time do you set goals for yourself or your team and i say no i don't because if I set goals, let's say my goal is to win 10 games in a season and we win nine, is that an unsuccessful season? Yeah. You know, or, you know, if a player's out there and says, I want to juggle 300 times, you get to 250, but you started at zero. Mm-hmm. Is that a bad, no, you're growing, you're progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best way I could sum it up is just, just embrace it. There's nothing better than embracing it. You're doing something you love. There's nothing greater than coaching a sport. Don't lose sight of what it's about. Um, don't look at the destination. That's not the rea- that's not the reality. The destination is where you're at now. Embrace it, love it, make the most of it, and and a lot of people around you will will welcome that. Sean, as I sit here with you and have done for the last hour, I can see, and it's it reverberates through everything you say. The love you have for this game, this profession, what you're doing. You generally want to help people. You generally want to. You know, put some some strength out there for people to latch on to, and I think there's as much in that and and in that process as there is in any of the titles. You know, you are a title winner. You won the Challenge Cup. You know, in 2022, you are you are exactly what this game needs. And I'm I'm so grateful for you giving us this time when we set this whole thing up. You you are the reason that we wanted to bring you closer to, you know, the the the, the army of aspiring coaches and players out there. And today they have heard straight from, um, straight direct from a manager in the NWSL competing at the highest level that they can be authentic and they can live through failure and they can they can reflect and learn as they grow. And you've made a space for everybody to look at their own practice and want to be better. And for that, I don't think there's any words I could say to thank you, but thank you, mate. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate you reaching out and obviously anything I can do to help grow the game and you know, coaches that are getting started out or even coaches that have been involved. I think that's our job is to, you know, we don't know each other, all all coaches across the country or world, but the more you can give insight into what you do, I think too many people want to keep things close to the best and that that's not going to be helpful. And then we will complain about those people down the road. It's, you know, I, I love doing all these types of things, but I like being in front of people even more just to talk the game and, you know, talk to young coaches and, you know, especially now in the off season, it's, this is the time to do it. And, uh, you know, don't feel as though, you know, I'd, I'd be more than happy to, 
come down to wherever you're at. If you have a group of coaches that are willing to listen and, and shoot, yeah. the, you know, shoot the talk, I'm, I'm an open book and happy to come down any day, anytime and, and, and help out any way I can. Oh, we're absolutely going to do it. We're, you know, we're, we're working on plans to have a, a pro player coaching conference or seminar of sorts. And as I say, we have some fantastic guests come on the podcast and people just giving their time because they believe, as you've just said, in, in helping and supporting, you know, in the, and in the support they got, as I'm sure you did as you came up through the system and people who helped you as well. But yeah, we'll definitely take you up on that, sir. At some point, we will uh, we will organise that event and get people in and, and really give access to, to the people who are making the changes and making the decisions at the highest level of the game. We have a couple of other managers uh, from the Super League coming on. I think we have a couple of other NWSL managers coming on later in December as well. And again, it's it's the reason that we set this up in the first place to put to put you right in, in front and centre of the young aspiring people and the coaches working in the game who just want it, want it to be better and they want to be better themselves. And I feel like we've certainly done that today. So Sean, can't thank you enough. Th thanks to the North Carolina Courage all your players and staff and to everybody involved with the organization um, we're really looking forward to, to watching what happens next season and we'll be supporting you've just gained a bunch of new supporters i'm sure i appreciate it. appreciate all the time and, and your investment in, in the development of coaches as well thanks man